0: I'm just going to pick back up, all right? God is the host of hosts. All that exists, exists by his invitation. To exist means to have been invited by God to be a part of a world that belongs to God. And this is especially true of human beings to whom God has given a unique position in the whole scheme of things, um, in, the, in the created order. The Bible reveals a God who delights to build homes and to furnish them and then to welcome others into them. In Genesis chapter 1, God creates the world and then God creates mankind and then he immediately and explicitly gives the world to mankind for food. God creates the world and then he lays it out as a meal to be shared with Adam and Eve. And this divine hospitality, I think, should color our understanding of the so-called dominion mandate. The dominion we are called to exercise is a dominion like God's. A dominion in which we too are to play the part of host and hostess. To be human is to be created in the image of the host of hosts. The fall of man was many things, but it was not less than the rejection of God's hospitality. Adam is welcomed into a beautiful and comfortable created order, and he has offered all the trees of the world as food minus one. There is one tree in the garden that is not yet to be treated as food. And indeed, it's, it's no accident that eating improperly, eating improperly is the form that man's rebellion takes. That's significant. God invited us to a meal, but we rejected that invitation, and we dined instead with the serpent. Faithful to his word, the Lord withdrew his hospitality. He cast out Adam and Eve from the beautiful and comfortable home he had built for them. And again, eating features prominently, even within his curses, even within God's curses. Till you return to the ground, for out of it you were taken, for you are dust, and to dust you shall return. So, because of sin, gathering food is difficult and painful now. And the human household, moreover, will experience the consequences of sin. The desires of man and wife will, apart from divine grace, produce rivalrous marriages. And with great difficulty and pain, will those marriages multiply? In short, the the home, the social order, and the the ability to set a table have all been thrown into frustration on account of human sin. And so, so east of Eden, we are left to ask the question, how in the world are we supposed to be hospitable now? We don't have a home. Food is hard to come by. Our family life is in shambles. How are we supposed to be hospitable under these conditions? The answer to that question for for Adam and Eve was unexpected. You see, they they were not alone in East of Eden. They They were not alone in exile. God had joined them in their exile even though mankind was cast out from the shalom and the Sabbath of God's presence in the garden, he still made a way for them to meet with him. It was the way of sacrifice. And it was yet another manifestation of his hospitality. You see, Adam and Eve were were sitting in the shame of their rebellion, conscious of their nakedness. And so animals were slaughtered, and their skin was formed into clothing to cover the nakedness of mankind. And in all of this, God was establishing a pattern that God's people have continued to follow to the present day. We approach God by way of sacrifice. Initially, we presented animals and feasted upon them in the presence of God. And today, we present Christ and we feast upon him in the presence of God. But either way, we enter into the presence of God by way of sacrifice. This is, again, divine hospitality. The mission of God, the mission which brought about our redemption and the redemption of the whole world is a hospitable mission. We can trace the mission of God following the rebellion of man through the ways in which he invites us and welcomes us and feeds us and clothes us. He is hospitable. I'm going to do a quick flyover of a few more examples of hospitality in the Old Testament just to drive home the idea that this is indeed a theme. So consider Noah. Noah plays mutual host with God, hosting, feeding, and sheltering both humans and animals during the flood. And upon arriving on land, Noah makes sacrifices to God, communion meals of thanksgiving. And Noah plants a vineyard. All of that imagery has us back in the garden. But of course, we're we're met with yet another fall of man. And and no, this, this fall was not that Noah drank too much. This fall was that Noah's son, Ham, despised his father's hospitality and, like Adam, sought to seize what had not yet been given to him. Consider Abraham in Genesis 12, God calls Abraham out of his father's house and into a new land that God was preparing for him, that God, the host of hosts, was preparing for him. Abraham was blessed by God so that he might be a blessing to others. Genesis chapter 18, verses 1 through 8. And the Lord appeared to Abraham Abraham, by the oaks of Mamre as he sat at the door of his tent in the heat of the day. He lifted up his eyes and looked. By the way, this this scene takes place immediately after Abraham's circumcision. Some commentators make make note of that because he starts running. um, That must have been painful. Uh, He lifted up his eyes and looked, and behold, three men were standing in front of him. When he saw them, he ran from the tent door to meet them and bowed himself to the earth and said, O Lord, if I have found favor in your sight, do not pass by your servant." Let a little water be brought, and wash your feet, and rest yourselves under the tree, while I bring a morsel of bread, that you may refresh yourselves. And after that you may pass on, since you have come to your servant. So they said, Do as you have said. And Abraham went quickly into the tent to Sarah, and said, Quick, three sayas of fine flour. Knead it, and make cakes. And Abraham ran to the herd and took a calf, tender and good, and gave it to a young man who prepared it quickly. Then he took curds and milk, and the calf that he had prepared, and set it before them and he stood by them under the tree while they ate. Abraham is taking after his God. He's taking after the host of hosts. He goes way out of his way to welcome a group of strangers. He runs out to meet them. He pleads with them to stay. He washes their feet. He has them rest under a tree. He feeds them bread and water and milk and meat. This was a, a sacrificial amount of food as well for three men question for consideration. Who, who else in Scripture do we see washing feet and sacrificing greatly in order to lay out a meal? See, Abraham was, was not merely squeezing in one more chair at the dinner table. He was rearranging the table entirely. Abraham is met with an enormous and costly inconvenience, but he accepted and received that inconvenience as from the hand of the Lord. And as it turned out, the inconvenience was the Lord. Moving on, consider the Exodus. For the people of God, the descendants of Abraham, the land of Egypt was an inhospitable place, to say the least. But the Lord led them out from the inhospitality of Egypt, out from the house of bondage, and into the land that God had promised to them, And prepared for them. It was a land in which to dwell. But more importantly, it was a land in which to dwell with God. So the people of Israel were slaves in Egypt, poor and helpless, in need of provision and protection. They depended upon the hospitality of God to meet them in their need and to create a beautiful and comfortable home for them to inhabit. God provided for them and protected them in their wanderings, set a table for them in the wilderness, and led them to a home where they could enjoy rest and peace and plenty. This is, once again, a powerful example of the host of hosts being a good host. Consider the law. As the recipients of God's redeeming hospitality, the nation of Israel is expected to be hospitable like God is hospitable. The law of Moses said, The stranger who resides with you shall be to you as the native among you, and you shall love him as yourself. For you were aliens in the land of Egypt. I am the Lord your God. And then even the famous command to love your neighbor as yourself actually comes within the context of hospitality. The people of Israel knew what it meant to be strangers. But they also knew what it meant to receive hospitality and welcome. And so, and so God asked them to extend this hospitableness outwards, first to the sojourner and the stranger within their borders, but then even, even further out than that, to, to be a light to the Gentiles. Once again, hospitality was bound up with the mission of God in the world. Israel's hospitality was essential to her holiness before the nation's. That brings us to the tabernacle and temple, also known as the house of God. From the very beginning, the house of God was intended to catalyze mission. It was a house of prayer for all nations. All nations were invited to the house of the Lord. Foreigners were invited to make certain offerings too. It wasn't just for Israelites. Numbers 15, if an alien sojourns with you, and he wishes to make an offering by fire as a soothing aroma to the lord just as you do so he shall do and if as i mentioned earlier that the sacrificial system is fundamentally about god making a way for sinful humans to share communion with him and to feast with him then it's not hard to see how hospitality actually is mission Hospitality is the form that God's mission takes. He, he welcomes outsiders into his house. Though, you know, it's worth mentioning that they cannot fully enter his house yet because that's a new covenant reality. All right, uh, one last example before we jump to Jesus. Consider David. In 2 Samuel, God promises to build David a house which not only refers to a physical house, but more importantly, a genealogical house. God promises to build David a dynasty. Regardless, this is once again a demonstration of God's hospitality. He takes David from the pasture, exalts him, feasts with him, and gives him a house. David is transformed by the hospitality of God. And then in 2 Samuel 9, he responds to God's hospitality By offering hospitality of his own. Is there not still someone of the house of Saul that I may show the kindness of God to him? Ziba said to the king, There is still a son of Jonathan. He is crippled in his feet. This son of Jonathan was named Mephibosheth. He was the last remaining member of a fallen and destitute house, and he was crippled in his feet. He was poor, and he was helpless. And yet, from that place of poverty and helplessness, just as he was, Mephibosheth was summoned to feast with the king. Summoned into the house of the king. But again, this was not just the kindness of David. David does not merely show the kindness of David. David says that he's showing the kindness of God. It's a radical form of kindness. David extends To his neighbor the same hospitality he had received from God. He gives to Mephibosheth a household. Now, all of these examples go to show that that the mission of God does not take on the form of hospitality and feasting merely with the advent of Christ. God has always, from the very beginning, been a host. He gathers He invites, he feeds, he clothes, he communes. And and then as, as those who have received his kindness, we are expected to show that kindness to others, to extend it. If you have a Bible, open to Romans chapter 12. I'll give you a minute. Okay, here we we see the Apostle Paul distinguishing between two types of love. Love for the brethren and love for the stranger. Okay, we're we're going to look at verse 10 and verse 13. Verse 10. Love one another with brotherly affection. The Greek word there is Philadelphia. And then verse 13 Seek to show hospitality. Contribute to the needs of the saints and seek to show hospitality. The Greek word there is philoxinia, the love of strangers. Philadelphia, the love of brothers. Philoxinia, the love of strangers. And so ancient Israelites were not permitted to love their friends and family to the neglect of the stranger. And, and likewise, Christians cannot simply love the brethren within the church and claim to have fulfilled the divine call to be hospitable. We are to seek, to eagerly pursue opportunities to practice the love of strangers. Now, flip over to Hebrews 13. We'll be in verses 1 and 2. Verse 1, let brotherly love continue, Philadelphia. And then, verse 2, do not neglect to show hospitality to strangers, Philoxenia. Again, the New Testament emphasizes both types of love, It, it does not conflate them. The love that ought to mark the church must not be inward oriented at the expense of the stranger. Nor outward-oriented at the expense of the brethren. We love as strain. We, we love strangers as brothers until they become brothers, and then we love them as brothers all over again. Now it's it's not hard at all to see how Jesus exemplified both Philadelphia and Philoxenia. In fact, it's more likely that the hospitality of Christ is so obvious that we tend not to notice it. Much like the Old Testament, the narrative and life that the narrative of the life and ministry of Christ can be told and traced in terms of hospitality. In the Exodus, the people of God were delivered from the inhospitality of Egypt. But in the Gospels, that Exodus narrative is flipped on its head. Joseph and his pregnant wife, fiance, cannot find hospitable brethren in the land of Israel. And so following the birth of Jesus, they actually seek refuge back in the land of Egypt. Again, the Exodus narrative is flipped on its head. In the words of Matthew, who was borrowing from the prophet Hosea, God is once again going to have to call his son out of Egypt. And so, much like his ancestors, Jesus could look to his own past for a reminder of the pain of inhospitality. Inhospitality marked the story of his birth and hospitality marked the story of his life. The Son of Man came eating and drinking, feasting, provided the context for some of his greatest miracles and most famous teachings. Hospitality was essential to his discipleship strategy. And Jesus Jesus wasn't just whining and dining with the social elite. We know that. It wasn't limited to cocktail parties with his middle to upper class friends. He intentionally broke bread with all sorts of people. But perhaps most notably, he broke bread with the social outcast. He feasted with disciples and drunkards, Levites and lepers, friends and Pharisees, tax collectors and sinful women. The alliteration kind of fell apart at the end there. Jesus practiced what he preached. This is, this is from Luke 14. When you give a dinner or a banquet, do not invite your friends or your brothers or your relatives or rich neighbors, lest they also invite you in return and you be repaid. But when you give a feast, invite the poor, the crippled, the lame, the blind, the Mephibosheths of the world. And you will be blessed because they cannot repay you for you will be repaid at the resurrection of the just. All right. So I've I've intentionally waited until now to define what I mean by hospitality and feasting. Um, I wanted to start by making the case that it's thoroughly biblical and essential to the mission of God. And the reason is because it's hard. The reason I waited is because it's hard. And because we don't want to do this. But, this is a men's group. Iron sharpens iron. So I will say it plainly. This is true. Biblical hospitality and feasting. According to Christ, your king. When you give a feast. Not if. When you give a feast. Invite the poor, the crippled, the lame. And the blind. When you give a feast, invite Mephibosheth. Again, most of us don't want to do this. I'd rather just give to a nonprofit. I'd rather pay more in taxes, honestly. Other people seem to be gifted at that kind of thing. I'm just, I'm just not. My home is too small. I'm incredibly busy. We, we really try to protect our family time. It's not safe to invite strangers over for dinner. Once the kids are older, once work settles down, once we renovate the kitchen, once we buy a larger house, Jesus' definition of hospitality and feasting elicits from us all sorts of excuses. The natural man does not want to do it. It takes a spiritual man. Sometimes we can make disobedience look and sound like discernment. But, but notice the promise baked into Luke 14. If you practice hospitality toward those who cannot repay you, you will be blessed. You will be blessed. You may not be repaid, but you will be blessed. In fact, if you practice hospitality toward those who cannot repay you, you minister to Jesus himself. See that in Matthew 25. Truly I say to you, as you did it to one of the least of these my brothers, you did it to me. So Jesus so identifies with the least of these that to love them is to love him. Feed the hungry. Welcome the stranger. Clothe the naked. Visit the sick and imprison, Because in doing that, you serve the king himself. So I, I do not think that we should seek to wiggle free from the full force of this calling, the full weight of this calling. Our, our king has not left us in the dark concerning how we are to serve him. Luke 14 is not unclear. We don't No one's debating what I just read. He has been abundantly clear with both his words and his example. While on earth... Jesus was the quintessential citizen of heaven and, and his ministry revealed the values and cultural characteristics of the kingdom of heaven. And so, so when the church lives according to this example, the world around us experiences a, a kind of kingdom enculturation. The world gets heavenized when we live this way. We call it the coming of the kingdom of God. The world depends upon us to live this way. In fact, there there are moments in the Gospels when Jesus makes a promise that must be kept by his people lest we make him a liar. Mark 10 is one example. Jesus said, Truly I say to you, there is no one who has left house or brothers or sisters or mother or father or children or lands for my sake and for the Gospel who will not receive a hundredfold now in this time houses and brothers and sisters and mothers and children and lands this promises that jesus will in a sense reimburse his people for the for the things they forfeit for his sake essentially he promises a hundredfold blessing of home he promises family and hospitality to those who are made strangers in his name and Jesus has promised this hundredfold blessing in this time. In this time. He's not saying, I, I know it's hard right now, but when you die, you'll be so glad you followed me. No, he's saying, I know it's hard right now, but I'm naming you among the citizens of heaven and I'm giving you a new family. The church. Those who have their world's upended out of loyalty to Christ, are promised a new and better family? Are we willing and prepared to be that family? Because the reputation of Christ is at stake here. Jesus has made a promise that we have to keep. And when the church is less than fully hospitable, we, we do. I, I think we make him a liar. The Jewish authorities we encounter in the Gospels Tend to get a bad rap. Uh, they're easy to demonize as legalistic opponents of Jesus, but when the Jewish authorities push back on Jesus for for the breadth of his hospitality, tax collectors and sinners, their fundamental concern was for the preservation of Israel's holiness and distinctiveness, and that's a that's a legitimate concern derived from the scriptures. God wanted his people to be simultaneously holy and hospitable. Their cities were to have walls, but those walls were to have gates. They were to be distinct, but not strictly isolationist. So again, the the Jewish authorities were not wrong per se, but their perspective was lopsided. They, they They were too much wall and too little gate. They were more concerned with holiness than hospitality, whereas Jesus was the living embodiment of both simultaneously. He was welcoming and he was uncompromising. And so true Christ-like hospitality is able to pursue both of those values simultaneously. We can pursue holiness without neglecting hospitality. And we can practice hospitality without jeopardizing holiness. We can have both high walls and wide gates. We'll talk about that more tomorrow. But not only does hospitality allow for the simultaneous pursuit of both of those values, hospitality also allows for the simultaneous pursuit of both evangelism and social action. Remember, we're we're not just talking about cocktail parties with your friends. We're talking about Luke 14 type hospitality hospitality that includes the poor, the crippled, the lame, and the blind. Some Christians advocate for greater social awareness and compassionate action from the church. They think that the church's mission has been too narrowly defined as essentially just evangelism. These Christians tend to be left-leaning in their perspective. Other Christians place the emphasis on the salvation of the soul. They believe societal justice and uprightness are downstream byproducts of the gospel, not essential to the gospel itself. Social change happens when hearts change. Christians tend to be right-leaning. But Luke 14 hospitality does not require that we subordinate either of those priorities to the other. Think back to that that quote from uh, Peter Lighthart. The church is a new way of being human together. What Jesus and the apostles proclaimed was salvation, and that meant a new human world, a new social and political reality. The church is the salvation of God in the form of a community. And in pursuing the practice of biblical hospitality, we are inviting the world into this new way to be human. We, we open our homes and we share our tables and we're inviting them to come Like I said, taste that salvation. We don't have to choose between evangelism and social action. Both are operative at our tables. In Luke 14, Jesus says nothing about the food. Nothing about the cleanliness of your home. Nothing about the topic of conversation. Jesus is primarily concerned with the guest list poor, the crippled, the lame, the blind. He envisions a form of hospitality that is social action. Hospitality that is social action. So we're talking about a radically countercultural thing. But at the same time, there's nothing particularly extraordinary about it, um, about opening your home and inviting the needy and just sharing a meal. On, on the surface, Jesus envisions an unlikely ragtag set of table companions who are probably stumbling their way through an incredibly awkward conversation. But the real story concerns the efficacy of that sort of love. That simple action, when were it to be practiced by each and every member of the body of Christ that has the power to change a society, to lift the poor and to to position them within the relational networks they need to establish their footing, especially in a town like Nacogdoches. Just imagine everyone doing that. Charity is good, but hospitality is better. We shouldn't just give to the needy. We, we ought to share with the needy. True, biblical hospitality requires more than just your stuff. It's about sharing yourself. It's about sharing yourself. Jesus loved people with real, embodied, tangible acts of self-gift. and We are called to the same. Those who have much should give to those who have little. But the giving should be done in such a way that the rich and the poor share in it together, at a common table. Let me pray, and then we can have some more Q and A for that. O gracious Father, you open your hand and fill all living things with plenteousness. Bless the lands and waters and multiply the harvests of the world. Send forth your breath and renew the face of the earth. Show your loving kindness that our land may yield its increase and save us from selfish use of what you provide, that the poor and needy may give thanks to your name. Through Jesus Christ, our Lord. Amen.